Welcome to Coming Out Evil. I'm Harley Honey. And I'm Mick Sedusa. Join our descent into villainy. Hello, evildoers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Out Evil. I'm your host today, it's Mick Sedusa, and we have a little bit of alone time together. It is just me, Harley, she'll join me the next episode in two weeks, so very exciting it's our first solo episode together today we're going to be doing a retrospective on the Wiz. some of you may have grown up with this movie this may be something you've heard of but haven't dived too deep into and maybe you have no idea what i'm talking about any of these is okay but i'm really excited because we're not only going to talk about the original piece of work from 1978 but also the newer adaptation from 2015 the live version they did I think it's interesting too because not only did they add new songs in the live version but they had very different characterizations and artistic choices made between the two movies that I think are really interesting. So let's jump into it. Before I get into the meat and potatoes of it all, I wanted to give you all a little bit of context into the history of these two adaptations and um, just a little bit of some fun facts. So The Wiz was originally a musical created by Charlie Smalls. It is, as you may have guessed, or maybe you know this, but it is an adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. Now, basically, in short, It is a black version of The Wizard of Oz, right? But it's also a lot more than that. So yes, like black culture is very much a star in this movie, in this piece of work, as much as the rest of the characters are. And it takes place in Harlem, New York. The movie was produced by Motown Records with Bertie Gordy and like a lot of big names were involved in it that people recognize. Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, and Mabel King, and also Ted Ross. So they pulled a lot of big names for this movie. Oh, also including Lena Horne. How dare I forget her? Yeah, so it like became a staple of black culture. And so not only that, but most people's hair in it. We have the main character, Dorothy. She's like sporting an afro the whole time. Everybody in the movie is blackity black, black, black. Now Lena Horne, we'll talk about it. But (laughs) yeah, so it was very much like celebrating black culture through the lens and like using black culture as a framework for reimagining The Wizard of Oz and what that might look like. So it started as a musical and it came out January 5th, 1975. The production played 15 previews and 1,672 performances before closing in 1979. It won eight Tony nominations, winning seven, including Best Musical. Seven Tonys is kind of insane for a musical. Other Tony winners include, you know, Phantom of the Opera, Lion King. Like, it's up there with the big dogs, right? Which is pretty major. This is our introduction to Stephanie Mills, who played Dorothy in the original, and she later became an R&B singer. So everybody was super excited about this musical, and they're like, okay, you know what? We gotta make a movie. So they did that three years later. October 24th, 1978, Universal Motown production, Manhattan set musical starring Diana Ross as Dorothy, Michael Jackson as a scarecrow, and it was predicted to be a major blockbuster. People were like, yeah, obviously this is gonna do well, but it tanked and it grossed a million less than its budget, right? So like it made 21 million, cool, but the budget was 22 million. Cause if you think about not only all the stars, we have like set after set after set, and these were elaborate sets. They had dance numbers, they had songs, like they had a whole situation going. So the budget was astronomical for this movie, and the ticket sales, it came out to both critical and commercial failure, marking the end actually 
of the resurgence of African-American films that began with the black exploitation movement of the early 1970s. I did not know this. I didn't know it ended a whole damn cinema era. It tanked so bad, which is just fascinating to me. <laughs> but yeah, there's also a little bit of tea behind the casting of the movie. So Ted Ross plays the lion and he originally was in the musical. And so it was Mabel King who played Eveline, AKA the Wicked Witch of the West. Originally, Stephanie Mills was gonna play Dorothy, um, which would have made sense because she was 21. We'll kind of get into the backstory the movie plays with, but she's young. Whereas Diana Ross was 34 at this point and she like strong-armed her way to the role. Bertie Gordy, she was trying to convince him to let her play and he's like, mm, nah. And she went behind his back and went to the eventual producer and was like, hey, if you promise to produce this film, then like I'll star with Michael Jackson and like it's a win-win. So like, yeah, she like pulled a lot of shady shit to get this role and it don't even make no sense because the character is supposed to be a 24 year old and she's a whole 34 year old woman. Now, does she look good for her age? Sure. Is ageism a thing? Absolutely. But also Stephanie Mills was like an up and coming artist that could have really used this movie alongside big names. Like they did not need Diana Ross in it. And I think, I don't know, I think it just leads to some weird dynamics in the movie that we'll definitely get into, but that's what I have. So yeah, that's the history and the context for you. Now as for the actual movie, how we're gonna do this is I'm going to kind of take a scene by scene and describe the original movie which I think will set the stage for describing the differences later with the newer version and why I think the newer version really did the damn thing <laughs> despite what my memory told me so okay so in the original version we open up to a scene in New York it's a classic family gathering around food Christmas maybe they don't really say actually but we see that it's snowy we see people playing what was it checkers or dominoes they're playing some sort of classic game the uncles are arguing the teenagers are making out and like there's a baby like it's a classic family gathering auntie m the first major character to speak right like people are coming in chit-chatting greeting each other but she opens the musical with the song i'd like to know it's there and it's talking about like the feeling of family and like of love just really feeling safe in that feeling right so dorothy however so this is her aunt right not her parents just like the original book and movie she runs out to the kitchen and she's been helping everything but she's been very quiet very shy and she has her own song where she's talking about not understanding that feeling of home that feeling of love that feeling of connection and how it's not only just foreign to her but just she's completely lost to it yeah so we start getting a dynamic that dorothy is a part of this big loving family and yet is somehow not able to receive this love for some reason so then we cut to auntie m and the uncle passed out they got the itis which is hilarious to me that they included that because that that's just quintessential black culture <laughs> but so they're passed out and then auntie m comes back to the kitchen to help clean up and she's talking to dorothy and we learn here that Dorothy's supposed to be 24, which if you see Diana Ross, you're kind of confused, but she's got a whole decade on this character. It's kind of wild, but she's telling her she needs to get out of that sandbox because she works as a kindergarten teacher and she'd make more money working in high school. And Dorothy's like, no, I like working with the kids, but she's 24 living at home, which I think was a bigger deal back then culturally, but 
yeah so the aunt is encouraging her to explore get out there more you know she's ragging on her you, you've never been south of 125th street it's something that comes up a lot in the movie so she's you know not been in new york too long or she's been there and hasn't explored much she's worked the same job not making much money and she's living with family and she's just encouraging her to get out there and encouraging her to live on her own too with her and her dog toto so that sets up i think the major conflict and then that leads us into the first big moment instead of being forced out of the home or like instead of having some external threat forcing them out of the home or like she's running away and then there's a storm toto deliberately runs out of the house into a blizzard and she goes to save him right so she wasn't like trying to leave home like the original and there wasn't gonna be anything that destroyed the house either like nobody was moving outside or anything everybody was safe inside but toto drags her out so we have the tornado of course and we see in this though that it's in the palm of a hand and we don't it's not revealed who it is yet but she blows the tornado and then suddenly dorothy lands literally in a sandbox she looks around it's kind of like a school playground setting there's a bunch of graffiti and then the graffiti comes to life and these small people or children she can't really tell are coming off the walls and this is their version of munchkin land right so already we're seeing instead of like the bright and colorful munchkin land with candy and songs and everything like we're getting like a really nitty-gritty like kind of school scene with graffiti like the tone is already very different as far as the oz that she's experiencing and just like in the original she comes through and she accidentally killed the wicked witch of the east she crashes through a big marquee sign because she doesn't have a house that's gonna fall on the witch this time so she crashes through this marquee sign that says oz lands on the witch and they're all free because the witch is what turned these people into graffiti and the witch's name in this is Evermean instead of the wicked witch of the east so she's like i've never killed anything in my life so then the next major character we're introduced to is a character named miss one now this is not glinda and we know that because glinda comes up later this is very specifically not glinda and she even says that that there's four witches there's Evermean, who she just killed eveline who's the wicked witch of the west there's miss one and then there's glinda the good witch of the north which also is a direct parallel to the original book by l frank Baum instead of the original movie in the book there's a witch for each direction and which is shown in the whiz too i think it's really interesting how much they pulled inspiration straight from the original book instead of the original the movie with judy garland and everything also just like in the original book the slippers are silver not ruby so miss one is not glinda but she has the parallel role of introducing dorothy to oz and explaining what she needs to do next to get home and explaining what happened to the munchkins right but miss one also has a lot of like imagery and motifs of like hoodoo of numerology of the lottery lady sometimes there'd be like on people's blocks there'd be a woman who would run lotteries and stuff and like run tickets or it's not something that happens so much to me in kentucky so i know of this but yeah this is like she's very much giving auntie energy and she's always writing down numbers and always saying "Ooh, these are your numbers whenever dorothy's like i've never been south of 125th street she's writing down those numbers right like numbers are a really big deal to her as far as intentionality and like it being a game but also there's quite a bit of magic involved right like 
just not even just between Oz, but also the cultural aspects too of it being like hoodoo and numerology kind of related to. So now with Evermean gone, there's only three remaining witches and the Wiz. And so there's a song establishing who the Wiz is. It is an amazing song. It's always been one of my favorites ever since I was a kid. He's the Wiz and he lives in Oz. And she's telling her like, I know you're not from here, but he can do all these magic things. Like you just need to go down the yellow brick road. They have a whole dance number in the middle of it. They're doing like gymnastics. They're doing hula hoop. They're doing frisbees, pom-poms. It's very much like schoolyard energy, right? And they're like just so excited singing about this man. So as soon as they're done singing, they disappear. And Dorothy's alone for the first time in Oz. Now she is left alone in a new place and she's lost. And so she, we get a little taste of a song called What Am I Afraid Of? And also the beginning motif of the home melody. Now home is a really really major song in black culture that came from this movie and it's the big ending number now first time through watching this you're not going to know that but this is the first time we hear that melody which i think is really important as she sings about um here i am alone though it feels the same i don't know where i'm going don't want to be afraid i just don't want to be here which is a whole fucking vibe (laughs) so she's making her way through oz she's figuring it out until she stumbles on the scarecrow Now, the thing about this scarecrow is that he is not alone in a field like the original. He's actually surrounded by four crows who are just ragged on him, roasting him, decimating this man, catching strays left and right just for no reason. He's also not just a scarecrow filled with hay, but in this version in particular, he is literally filled with trash, which uh, I don't know. I don't, I think there's a lot that could be said about that, but... I just saw where some people were realizing for the first time that his nose is like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Go look at a picture. I'll make sure it's on the website too. Some pictures of the characters. Yeah, like the scarecrow looks rough, right? It's not like a cute little guy with a silly little hat and like, hey, peeking out like he's made of trash and he's stuck on the pole. And not only is he stuck up there, but he's literally having these four crows who are not scared of him. Like, literally dancing around him making fun of them smoking drink and doing whatever they want and ragging on him so of course he's got no brain it's actually just filled with fortune cookie and philosophical quotes where he'll like pull it out and read it and so when we come to them he's excited because he's like is today the day you're gonna help me down off this airplane and they're like what the hell are you talking about and you're stupid as usual because they have these commandments about how he is never ever ever gonna get off that pole i don't really know what the motivation is here i've watched this movie ever since i was five like this was one of my first favorite musicals ever i've watched this movie my entire life and i've watched it in adulthood and i still don't understand what the draw is here or even like i don't know i i I think really the thesis here is that they're just haters for the sake of being haters like they could fly and go anywhere and they are choosing to stay here And not only not help him, but just rag on him too, instead of leaving and going and doing something else. And they're saying though, they're like, you're good friends with the crow. We've dedicated our lives to educating you. They have him repeat the crow commandments, ending with, thou shall never, never come down off this here pole. Which then leads us into the absolute best song of the musical 
and I will not be taking further questions. This has been my favorite song since I was five. And I think that is alarming, but it is such a banger. It was also my first introduction to Michael Jackson too. So if you can just like literally the song may be like, mama, who's that man? And she's like, oh, that's Michael Jackson, baby. And I'm like, wow, like, I really remember that conversation. It was so monumental to me. It is like funky and it's just like, it's upbeat, but the lyrics just hit a little too hard. They hit me now as a depressed 27 year old. They should not have been hitting a five year old like that, but I digress, it's a banger. Yeah, and like, it's got gems like, so you lay back and you smoke that smoke and you drink that glass of wine, you can't win, child. Right, and like, you can't win. No way if your story stays the same. Mm. There's just so many good lines in that song, literally. This song, at least, y'all need to hear. So after he sings the final commandment, Dorothy decides that she's going to help him get off the pole. And he immediately starts screaming from excitement and the crows are just watching. Before he even starts getting down, he's like, now this is just an experiment. He's already feeling defensive telling the crows to like back the fuck up because he's like, I've never walked thanks to y'all. So chill. They get him off and he immediately like falls. Like he's trying to hold on to the pole he was just on and he's like struggling. He falls, the crows laugh, and Dorothy goes on to say, you're just the product of some negative thinking. First, we gotta get rid of these crows. And then Dorothy and Toto scare the crows off. They start chasing them with a the broom and Toto's just being fearsome <laughs> and going up to them and eventually they get them away. And so with this, it takes just a little bit of walking around the pole to figure it out, get his sea legs. And he's like, you mean all this time, the only difference between living up there and living it up down here was those crows, right? So it's like, literally, yeah, I think that's pretty much, it. there was no reason for these crows to like be harassing the scarecrow. There's no money, there's no anything. They literally just wanted to keep him down for shits and giggles. And this is just where they hung out and they just did that. And that affected this man's whole life. So yeah, I think I like resonated a lot with like, the message they're imparting in this. And I think it's also interesting too that like, okay, so if we think back to the original book, L. Frank Baum, when he wrote the book, it was a time of great economic crisis in the United States. It was the early 1900s. And so people may not know this, right? But the slippers were like financial freedom, were like financial security. That was like a representation of like, you did it right? Like everything Americans are working toward essentially, like the American dream. The scarecrow represented the farmers and then the tin man represented like industrial workers, specifically in Hershey, Pennsylvania. The lion represented politicians actually. So each of their things they didn't have, right? So the scarecrow having no brain, right? Like they, farmers weren't able to get the education they needed. The tin man had no heart. You know, you have these industrial workers. It was the time of like the industry age in America really like getting into swing of things and like it was causing a lot of developments and homes to become very rough in particular I think in Hershey Pennsylvania too like it was really brutal like the wage disparity and the living conditions of workers versus the people making the profits and then the lion was politicians he had no courage right so I think that kind of pretty much speaks to itself right so yeah so like his book was very much politically motivated, right? And so I think it's interesting that they went back to so many 
inspiration pieces from the book and I think to be black is inherently political right right the personal is political correct also like I think they take a little they do that they recognize it's political and they add another humanistic approach to it too right like it's I think especially it involving being black right so like where we live and we go through things and we'll have people just rag on us for no reason right but like it's worth experimenting and trying anyway but if you have all these people keeping you down which is something that marginalized people will experience all the time socially politically you know in every aspect of our lives then that's hard to break through right so i think it is really really interesting that they chose to go back to like the silver slippers the four witches i think they really wanted to say like hey i want you all to pay attention to like not just what the original book was saying and then how we're looking at that through black culture so now after that they start looking for the yellow brick road and it's interesting too because in the original movie of course we have the follow the yellow brick road they show her the beginning of the road she's already on when she meets the scarecrow but in this movie they tell her yeah yellow brick road you can catch a cab blah 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 and so there's this yellow cab that she tries to catch but it says off duty and drives away which is just hilarious to me i haven't been to new york a whole lot but i think there is a trope of like having like some people really struggling to be able to catch a taxi or just like it being too busy or whatever so that also gets added into this right instead they start looking for the yellow brick road by foot and they see a couple here and there and then suddenly they see the yellow brick road and that leads us into our next big musical number super upbeat super excited it is called ease on down the road and it's just oh this is another really good one i think it has a lot of hidden gems in the lyrics that i didn't pick up on as a kid but you know it's got lyrics such as don't you carry nothing that might be a load just ease on down ease on down the road just you keep on keeping on the road that you choose don't you give up walking just because you gave up shoes right so they go down the yellow brick road and they're easing on down and they come up to an abandoned amusement park and now we are about to meet the tin man they're giggling they're excited they've been he's on down he's on the road he and they hear someone crying out for help the imagery in this scene is just not cute the tin man scene really sticks out to me as kind of problematic there is a hefty dose of fat phobia and colorism so if you've never seen it before beware because he's like stuck under a statue of like a mammy figurine that's had him like crunched up and like he talks about how oppressive this relationship was and like it's just not cute so i think that's worth mentioning that this movie definitely has its issues too so he's all scrunched up and he's been stuck but he goes on to tell them like i told you i have no feelings nothing hurts me so we learn that he has no heart but also no sensory which makes sense because he's a man made of tin his look is also very different from the original tin man the original Tin Man in the movie is like silver with like a funnel on his head. It's very chrome finished, very monochromatic. And this Tin Man, he is like, one, they clearly kept him looking like a black man. And two, he has all sorts of colors. He's got on a jazz hat. He's got on a red bow tie. So he's a very colorful Tin Man. He's mix matched and made up of different types of tin and cans and everything. So he actually has two songs and honestly one of them is kind of a skip for me. Called What Would I Do If I Could Feel and it's eh, it's mid. I don't know what to tell you. Like I've just never really been into it. So that's just him explaining he's got no heart. 
And then he's got another song called Slide Some Oil To Me. And that song I can really get into. And honestly, it's also very much a chronic pain mood. <laughs> he like jams up and he's like, oil, oil. The song's just got a good beat and he's like tap dancing just like in the original movie. But I think I like seeing it in this movie too. Not just as like a callback to the original movie, but like tap dancing is very much like black culture. If y'all ain't know that, that is ours. Like we started that, right? So that's nice. And I like that a lot. After he does his song and dance, they were all dancing and singing. They're all committed to going to the whiz. They stop hailing the taxis. They don't even care about the taxis. They're so excited to ease on down that road. And they do have another reprise. So now to our last companion on this journey. We are to the lion. And the lion in this is, as I mentioned earlier, played by the original Broadway actor, which is very exciting. He really eats this role entirely. And there's a crosswalk that literally says ease and don't ease, which I thought was cute. So the lion actually is like outside of a library and he looks like a statue lion until they notice his eyes are moving and then he breaks out and he is camp. Camp. Now, some of you may know this already, but in the original movie, the lion was already pretty queer coded, which with the historical context of him representing politicians is loaded. But this man puts that lion to shame. Like he is camp. He is queer. I don't even want to say coded. He is just queer, right? Like the man is wearing paw high heels. Like, I don't know how to explain it to y'all. Like honestly, his outfit is great. Like it's, he's got this big, beautiful hair and this like mask where you can like still see his lips, but he's got this fitted vest on. Like it's just so camp. I don't know how to explain it. And his song is also really good. It's called Mean Old Lion. He's like, say what you want. Cause I'm a mean old lion. And it's just like really jazzy and like funky. It's so good. So fucking camp though. And he like snarls all sassy. So he's singing about how mean a lion he is. And then finally Toto bites him on the paw and they see like how wimpy he actually is. He starts screaming, you have bit my paw. And like, so when they also go into this reprise of He's On Down the Road, there's a lyric. Oh, there may be times when you wish you wasn't born and you wake one morning just to find your courage gone. But you know that feeling only lasts a little while. So you stick with us and we'll show you how to smile. Yeah, so like each time they do the reprise, they're specifically addressing it to the person they just added onto the journey and like talking about courage or heart or anything. So that line though, I think really has always stuck with me a lot. I think it's interesting they touch on ideation, like <laughs> saying you wish you wasn't born. Like, I don't know how else to interpret that, but ideation. So yeah, this movie definitely not only is grittier as far as visually, but as far as content too, like it really gets into some darker areas, which I don't think it's a bad thing, but it is something to be aware of because it's not quite the most easygoing movie to watch. <laughs> it's very much kind of intense, which is especially exemplified in the worst scene of the movie. Everybody say it with me. It's the fucking subway scene. So this scene made me look up before even doing this podcast episode. This was a, maybe a couple years ago. I was watching it and I was like, is this actually for kids and I looked it up and yeah so even Wikipedia is noting that a lot of people criticize the script for being too scary for children but then also too silly for adults 
This is about to sound boring, but it is a very creepy movie. And we see that very prominently in the subway scene. So they've had this character, Dorothy first ran into him when she left Miss One. And it's like this man, he doesn't look super inviting. He's like, he's got these puppets. I don't know how to explain. It's just a bad vibe. He's just creepy. And he's got these like, the stick with a puppet on each end of these creepy red demonic looking things. And so he's been popping up here and there through the movie and you're just kind of like, what the fuck is happening here? So eventually they leave the library, they go down into the subway and this man has followed them down there. And now his little puppets, there's this creepy music just like, like just very much giving like Jason, like, right? Like vibes. And the puppets are now growing. And as they grow, the music gets deeper and bassier and scarier. And then they come to life and start chasing them. I will never understand the scene for the life of me. And also as a kid who watched this in Kentucky, I had never been on a subway before. This did not help me when I eventually went to metropolitan areas with the subway. Cause like, what the fuck was this? So these creatures start chasing them. Trash cans try to eat the scarecrow. A fire alarm tries to extend some electrical leads and tries to shock the tin man. Some columns try to surround Dorothy, like break free from the ceiling and the floor to try to surround Dorothy. And in each situation, they're like relying on Lion to come save them, which I think is interesting since he just told them he has no courage. I don't know if this was supposed to prove that that's not true or that these friends motivate him or what, but entirely not needed scene. I hate it so much. Very awkward. There is a scene in the original book where the four of them are together going through the jungle and they do have to fight some sort of creature or like cross a bridge. There is like some perils in the jungle that may have been navigated by the lion in particular. That might be the parallel there. I would accept that. But otherwise, it's just such a weird fucking scene, dude. I just don't know how to convey how horrible and awkward this scene is. <laughs> So after this, when they leave the subway, we get into the parallel of the poppy scene, which in this movie is a strip club joint. And it's like a funk burlesque strip club situation. And there's like all these like beautiful black women. The lion was like, Dorothy, I'll like dance with you or whatever. Like he's, he's feeling good. They just escaped the subway. He's feeling himself. So they go over and they go to dance with them. And the poppy dancers sprinkle them with something drug them with something i don't know it's very different when it's not flowers doing the drugging when it's people i think it reads very different so that's interesting and i think it's also interesting too because in the original movie whenever they come to the poppy field lion and dorothy are the only two mammals so like of course they're gonna be affected but in this they just had to have the lion go try to dance with dorothy and then get drugged i don't know man maybe i just don't get it but i really truly don't so they then go down a slide and they're like passed out entirely and the tin man brings them back with his tears the lion is so upset with himself for leading them into danger that he tries to jump off a balcony so back to that not even just ideation at this point but straight up like suicidal tendency here i think it's also interesting to note that if these women are dancers or even sex workers are they villainizing them i think that was a choice like they could have just had flowers my dude and they chose to make them people at a strip club so it's like yeah it's giving swerfy a little bit but yeah so he tries to jump 
They convince him not to, and then we get to the other, not just skip song, but very uncomfortable song. <laughs> and I, like, held this in my heart for years until I watched this with another group of people as an adult, and we all just agreed, like, this song is very creepy. Like, it is very weird, the dynamics here. This man is clearly older than Dorothy, and would probably be even older than an actress actually playing her age. So this is the first time Dorothy kind of steps into a maternal role instead of being like a scared kind of childlike person that people are looking after. So she's like comforting him. At one point he's like sucking his thumb and like laying on her chest. Like it's just weird. He's like crying. But it's called be a lion. Yeah, I would skip. But one of the lines is you're a lion in your own way. Be a lion. She said gay rights. But <laughs> that's that. So after this horribly awkward scene from the subway to the poppies to the be a lion worst part of the movie easily we get to the emerald city we literally see the sun is a big apple like if you weren't sure this was new york before you're going to know now this is most definitely new york which is interesting because she's also from new york specifically so it's like in the movie originally right like it's the difference of kansas to oz like completely fantastical world none of us ever knew about never like have no similarities to literally went from sepia black and white to color like the differences are abound but here they're like no this is also new york kind of like <laughs> so they try to get into the emerald city the guard is like the service entrance is on the side until he sees her shoes and does a switch up so there's a touch of classism and then they come in and they are dancing so there's a song called the emerald city sequence and it is like oh it's just so good it's like funk it's like but kind of like laid back it's like not high energy like it doesn't start high energy it kind of starts out more laid back and they go through different colors so they walk in and it's green for emerald city and then the wizard's like you know what i'm over this let's do red then everything changes to red the scenery, the outfits, hair, makeup, everything changes to red. Like, in the span of 30 seconds, if that. And they have a whole song about the color red. And they're like, I would never be caught seeing green. What are you talking about? Another line in here is, don't tell them you gave up one week's feed to pay for your colored hair. Right? So <laughs> we're getting into some interesting dynamics here. And then they switch to the color gold, like the yellow brick road. And this is the most high energy part of the sequence. Each one has its own flavor, but they still feel very much connected. So yeah, it's like a really, it's such a good sequence. It's so good. So they're dancing and then all of a sudden they hear the booming voice say, send up the one with the silver slippers. Now there's been these like walking cameras walking around recording everything. That's what they are. They're just walking cameras. They're literally cameras with legs. And so eventually now that he said that one of them catches attention of Dorothy's silver slippers, Everybody sees them. They're losing their minds as they like go to the VIP area. And they're like, I've been trying to get an appointment for two years. And so then they all try to come up. And the wizard's like, no, just the one with the silver slippers. And she's like, forget it. I'm not coming up then. I came here with all of my friends. So then he says, all right, send up the riffraff. So they all get to go. So now we actually are confronted with the wizard. So we see a giant silver like sculpture of some sort but he's also got an afro which i think is great and 
<laughs> he's like trying to intimidate them. There's like fire coming out of his mouth. He's like, what do you want? And the scarecrow's like, we came for some of your great whiz. Dumb. <laughs> it's just stupid. It's just so stupid. And he's like, what's in it for me? And they're like, we'd be very grateful. And he's just laughs in their face. Just yuck, 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 yuck. Dead ass. That's what he says. Yuck, yuck, yuck and all. So then he's like, you know what? I'll do it if you kill Eveline. And she's like, what? And after this, they have a motel that they go to? Sure. An Emerald City motel. And she's sitting on the bed. And they all come in the room and they sit there and they're like talking it out. And she's like, you know what? And she takes off her earrings and she's like, I'm going to fight Eveline. I'm going to do it. I got to get home. And everybody commits to joining her. And then the road to Eveline, the Emerald City guard actually shows them as like a sewer. So the next morning, presumably, they go to encounter Eveline. So Eveline, we come down the sewer and we see it's a sweatshop and that she owns a sweatshop. Whoa. And there's a sign that says manufacturers and exporters of sweat. So not even just a sweatshop producing something, but sweat. Like That's her point. Very much akin to like hell slash sweatshop, which I think is fascinating. We also see now the crows, the poppy dancers, the creepy subway guy are all branded and chained together filing into the sweatshop to be booked. Now this is also where we get the other original Broadway actress Mabel King who like eats up her role and her song is called Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News and it's like high energy it's kind of got some gospel influences and it's just it's just so don't nobody bring me no bad news it's like when I wake up in the morning and like don't nobody come in here with that shit <laughs> it's just a high blood pressure bpd mood for me so the sweatshop dancers they're dancing and singing they're also in these like huge like suits these work suits and like masks and they like look really grimy and like uncomfortable one of them mentions they haven't had a lunch break in six months so to that eveline responds suffering is food for the soul now suffer <laughs> she also announces across the room she said nobody stopped dorothy eh And so it looks like everybody, the poppy club, the guy with the puppets, the crows were all supposed to be stopping Dorothy, which I guess explains the motivation for some of these things. But as a kid, that that one line definitely went over my head. I don't know. And I still am kind of like, all right, but I digress. So she calls for the flying monkeys and the flying monkeys in this are actually, they're leather clad motorcycle drivers and supposedly smell really bad everybody freaks out and they're talking about how gross they smell and the head monkey is named cheetah and she tells them it's their turn to like secure dorothy and the other three knowing that they've come into her fortress and it immediately cuts to the group hiding from the flying monkeys and like running around trying to find each other eventually we see the tin man trying to go up a down escalator to get away from one and he just gives up we see lion loud as fuck and like running through eventually the scarecrow finds a dumpster to hide in and he tries to wave over dorothy and like be slick about it and dorothy's like where's dodo yelling and clearly blowing their cover and they get all four of them into the dumpster but then they all get surrounded by the flying monkeys it's a done deal it's a wrap so they get caught and immediately cuts to them being in eveline's fortress situation dorothy is standing in front of her while the lion is tied up by his tail the tin man's on a table that almost looks like a tanning bed but it's like a steamer and the scarecrow is like under a big saw. So they're all, they're torture ready. So Eveline's like, give me the shoes. And she's like, no. And she's like, what? And this seems to be a big theme for Dorothy. Like as scared as she's been this whole time, she stays telling people no. And is like 
getting more and more empowered and saying that even in the face of certain torture. The torture scene is also fairly dark. They're like torturing the lion, they're tearing apart the scarecrow, they're steaming the tin man flat, like they're going through it. And so then what gets her to change her mind is that Evelyn was like, well, I'm going to put your dog in a fire. And she's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm gonna take the shoes off. My bad. So she starts to take off the shoes. And so she sits on a table and the scarecrow like whispers to her. And she's, he's like, hey. And so they see a fire alarm. So that way she can put out the fire so there's no risk for Toto. Or at least they can buy some time. What they don't know is that whenever she sets off this fire alarm and the sprinkler system goes off, that Eveline is going to melt. A la the original movie. So Eveline melts. Everybody is like, oh my god, that worked. The sweatshop workers help reconstruct the friends. Like re-stop Scarecrow, re-inflate the Tin Man. I don't even know. Help get the lion down. And after that, all the machinery melts with Eveline. The dust is swept clear, the rainbow emerges, as the sprinkler system stops. So now we get into Brand New Day, which is a really cute little song. And I think it's like very hopeful. It's got some gospel vibes. Everybody be glad. The sun is shining just for us. And like, there's a note here. Apparently I was tearing up. Like they're just really happy to be free. And like the lyrics in it are really cute. The other reason the scene is so memorable too is that everybody unzips their big heavy costumes. And underneath they're like black women and men and everybody else. They're all in very simple like white kind of simple dance. I don't say like underwear but it's like pretty stripped back right? And it's like not sexual but it is like very much free and kind of celebrating skin and human form if that makes sense. So they have this really beautiful kind of Alvin A. Lee inspired dance number. The choreography in this movie really fucking ate. It is a long song though. I don't know if it needs to be that long, but it is a really like beautiful scene though. So after all that, they're now back to the Wiz to have him fulfill his end of the bargain. The flying monkeys lead them right to the back door of the Wiz, which I think is interesting that they knew exactly where that was. They find the great Wiz head has fallen and they walk in and they find Richard Pryor. Now, He's not Richard Pryor in the movie. But that was another big name I failed to mention earlier, who plays The Wiz, who, if you don't know, was a big comedian at the time. And he gets caught and he's like, I'm sorry, you know, Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. I was there, I heard it, and I never thought I'd be one of them. And they are mad. They're like, I've seen men shot for less. Public office is the last refuge of the incompetent. Because he mentions he was a politician back in his hometown. So it's just whole thing's a mess. They're really tearing into this man. There's absolutely no empathy for this man who is claiming he just wanted to get home and didn't know how to, but everybody got scared of him. So they'll never get their wishes, but unlike the original movie, they don't even get trinkets, just a pep talk from Dorothy. So like, if you remember the original movie, at least he's like, oh yes, I'm a human, but here's a heart for you. And here's a diploma for you. And here's a little badge for you. They don't even get that. They just get a pep talk. So after this though, Glinda finally makes her entrance. Now Glinda is Lena Horne, who's a big name at the time, and who's also the godmother of the director of the film. Relevance? I don't know. Worth throwing it out there though. The Wiz definitely has a colorism problem at this point though, because she's supposedly the most powerful witch. She's like come to fix everything, and she's light as hell. She's light. Like, light light to the point where growing up before i understood nuances of race i definitely thought she was just a white woman i know better now especially i mean look at me talking like i'm light as fuck but it is very interesting that 
everybody else has been unambiguously black. Every single person, every single side character, every single background person, every single dancer. And then they have Lena Horne playing like the most powerful witch who comes in and solves everything. I don't know. I don't know. So she then is talking about home with Dorothy. She says, home is knowing, knowing your mind, knowing your heart, knowing your courage. If you know yourself, you're always home anywhere. And she's surrounded by these little star babies. Like each star is a little, just precious little baby all dressed up. It's so cute. And so now Glinda gets a big number called If You Believe, where she reveals how Dorothy gets home, clicking her heels three times. And then the scarecrow pulls his last quote and he says, all that is real in the world is a friendship that two can share. And that's actually an original quote from him. And we get into the final number of the song, Home. This is just Diana Ross. It's her big number. And it's, she's standing alone while she's singing it. And it shows images in reverse chronological order of her journey through Oz and back at home and everything as she sings. And Home is just such a heavy hitter of a song. Like, it's just so amazing and beautiful and just, oh, it makes me feel so many feelings. Right? Like, it's just like, oh, it's just so good. So she's, like, really talking about what home means to her now. Like, she struggled with that connection and love and family before. But now she's like, I get it. Like, home is, like, it all makes sense. Like, the wind that blows through the grass. I miss that. And that makes sense now. Like, that means something to me now, right? Like, just a really beautiful song. And she clicks her heel three times and then she's back home. So that's the gist of the original movie. It deserves notoriety for doing what it did for black culture and with not only this musical but with even the the origin material of The Wizard of Oz. It feels so far removed and yet like there's so many clear direct ties to the origin work that it's impossible to ignore which I think is really incredible. So then with The Wiz Live a lot changes. This came out in 2015 on NBC. I remember the first time I watched it, I was very rigid. I did not like it because it was not the original. I was very bitter about it, but watching it as an adult definitely changed some things. So some of the major differences are that one, this was done live for an audience. It was done for television. The color palette is much more colorful and Dorothy's outfit is much more similar to the original movie version. And she also lives on a farm in this version with Aunt M and her uncle. And it's actually like a young woman. Shanice Williams plays Dorothy Gale. This was, I believe, her first big project she ever did. So I really appreciate that they like gave an up and coming artist an opportunity to like really shine and come through on something so major, which I think was a missed opportunity in the original movie. And I think they like clocked that and really switched it up. Let's get into the reception of the live viewing. So the Wiz Live received positive reviews from critics who praised the acting and singing abilities and being an improvement over the last two live NBC musicals. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 91% rating, which is pretty good. with an average rating of 8.8 .8 out of 10. And it's considered one of the best, like, NBC musical broadcasts. They've also done Grease, and they've also done Peter Pan. So, although higher than Peter Pan Live, it trailed a Thursday night football game between the Detroit Lions and Green Bay Packers, which was seen by around 17 million. So, it was a rough night to be produced and seen. The viewership was 
pretty high. It was 11.5 million viewers. So in this, there's no big family gathering. At the beginning is Dorothy and Aunt Em talking. And she lives on a farm with Aunt Em and the uncle now. And instead of a big family gathering, it's just the two of them talking. She's moved from here originally. She's from Omaha. We learned that in this version, Dorothy's parents were lost in an accident. Dorothy's also much more strong-willed in this version versus the very, like, meek and timid Dorothy in the 1978 Wiz with Diana Ross. She's catching attitude with her aunt. She's like, you're not my mother. She's trying to run away. And the aunt is like, hey, chill. There's a storm coming. She also says something along the lines of home is something that got to be earned, which yikes. I don't know if that's something I agree with in general, but especially to tell a child is interesting. And so now they kept the same song for the feeling that we have, but it's sung in a completely different context where it's alone with Dorothy singing to her and explaining like the power of family and connection instead of like her removing herself and having her own feelings about it. Like the aunt is like almost pleading with her to get it. So Dorothy decides not to run away, but she gets trapped in the storm. And then they have like a really cool theatrical cyclone. I love how theaters will like interpret cyclones. It's just so cool to me. I'm a big choreography fan. I'm realizing with this movie. Also, this is the last we see of Toto. After this, they just do not fuck with the dog anymore, which made me a little sad, but I guess I get it. So after the cyclone, we get an like OG Munchkin Land. It's colorful, it's bright. It's what we kind of know and recognize when we think of Munchkin Land for the Wizard of Oz. We cut the silver slippers and we have Amber Riley playing. Her name is Auntie Pearl, which Auntie Pearl the Magic Girl? And it's not Miss One. I was a little confused by that. But I loved her voice. She sang the same song of he's the Wiz and he lives in Oz. So definitely the same role, but they definitely changed the name and they took out the numerology hoodoo aspect, which I think is like fine. Like this is a different interpretation. It's more Munchkin land. It's more like fantasy. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was interesting. I think what I do like about this rendition is that it felt like a pretty even mix of the Wiz and the Wizard of Oz. I think... It is a better introduction to the Wiz than the kind of nittier, grittier black exploitation version. Just because it is visually more colorful, it's lighter in theme, and it's still like hella black. The names they got for the live version of this are still major. Are they as major as Diana Ross and Michael Jackson and everybody was at that time? Probably not. But there was like Queen Latifah, Amber Riley, a whole bunch of big names. So, you know, it was up there. Yeah, it's like colorful, it's bouncy. So this song is also like faster pace, which I remember when I was younger, I didn't like, but it actually works well for this. And I think both for timing of a live event and just to keep the pace going, like it was a good decision. Oh, I also have a note here that Glenda is actually the Good Witch of the South, which is just like the book. She wasn't the Good Witch of the North in the book. So that's an interesting change at callback. Amber ate her song. It's also the first time we hear Dorothy sing and Shanice has got an incredible voice. And then I guess there's a note here that Amber Riley's magic was hit or miss, which was funny. Dorothy's told to follow the yellow brick road and she's alone now. There's the same song, but it's double time now. The song where she's exploring Oz. So a lot of faster pace, but it definitely hit me different as an adult. It definitely seemed to have landed better. And the first home appearance. And I really liked the instrumentation. I also learned around this time that Shanice went on to do something called Straight Out of Oz after this. So this project seemed to really like get her out there, which I'm glad for. So she's traveling. She comes up on the scarecrow. Dorothy ease on down theme 
played briefly before finding the scarecrow. So we got a little bit of a, a taste of it before she came up on him. The crows in this version actually take money from the scarecrow. Like any money he saves. And in this version, he's also filled with hay and not trash. Right, so back to the keeping it light, keeping it cute um, kind of vibe of this. And this, they're claiming they're educating both Dorothy and the Scarecrow, which is, I think, an interesting dynamic shift. The you can't win in this version still slaps, which if I were to follow Michael Jackson's shoes, I would be losing it. I would be losing my mind. But he really, Elijah Kelly did that. So then after he sings it, Dorothy scares off the crows, but this time without Toto, cause she's just badass in this. Like she just does it by herself. And Ease On Down the Road is actually updated in this. And I guess at the time I thought it was less corny. I think I definitely thought it was corny as a kid and as an adult, it's grown on me, but yeah, the original is kind of corny. But this one, they updated the instrumentation, added some really cool harmonies and the choreo is super cute in this version as well. For the Tin Man, it's fucking Neo. <laughs> <laughs> that's just so funny to me slide some oil to me by neo is even better than the original like it's fire <laughs> every song in this is just fire they also have some cool sound effects for the tin man they also had a little bit of a dynamic that the scarecrow was jealous so that's interesting and they kept the backstory for the tin man from the book actually in this plot so the backstory of like he was in love with a woman and i believe she's the daughter of a witch and so when things go awry, the witch curses him to be a tin man. So they like kept the original backstory of that. And he's like, see what had happened was, that's cute. So yeah. So we get to the lion, it's a very abrupt transition. He's got a great voice. Who plays the lion in this? David Allen Greer as the lion. So <laughs> he is a legend. And Dorothy punches him in the face since Toto can't bite him in the paw. He's got dreads for his lion mane, which I think was such a cool choice and like looks so good. He's on on the road, comes back and has those improved harmonies and instrumentation, which is really nice. Oh my God. And the best part of this is that since it's more the OG Emerald City, there's no subway scene. I mean, I think that alone does so much for this. Cause like, I don't know, it just, it's, oh, I love it. So instead of the subway, they have a forest scene. And in this, Dorothy is hallucinating her mom. And the mom goes, like, coaxes Dorothy to pass over her slippers to free her from a tree. And suddenly, flying monkeys come out when she tries to go and do it. And then the lion says, I would mollywop any fool trying to step you. But then he also cowers more than he helps. But this time, whenever they do be a lion, it's definitely a better tempo. And it makes more sense of, like, a kid encouraging an adult and being like hey like be a lion like right like it's a lot more wholesome than just like a weird maternal vibe that the original gave and it's no longer a skip in this version yeah so there's that i feel like whoever was working on the instrumentation and music for this they were doing like hours to make that a not skip song <laughs> so then the poppy scene still represented by seductive women the lion offers to dance with one and then he just takes them all down. Yeah, he like outwits them and then like restrains them all and they just keep it pushing. <laughs> so love that for them. Emerald City Guard is played by Common. And the Emerald City sequence scene, they started voguing. Like it was very much adding some queer culture to it. Oh my God, it was just, it gave everything it needed to. 
understood the damn assignment. Yeah, I was really vibing with this version of Dorothy. Like, she was just a badass, and it was definitely an improvement, I think, over how meek Diana Ross's Dorothy was. I think that just got on my nerves. The Wiz puppet was fucking dope in the live version. Queen Latifah is a drag king Wiz in this. Okay, so we got no subway scene. We got drag king Wiz. Like, I just... Oh, it's just so good. There's also a new song in this with Queen Latifah. What could I do if I could feel shows up here? And at this point, I put in the notes, I whisper, this might be superior to The Wiz from 1978, which I never thought I was going to say, but it's really, really good. So this time, though, when The Wiz tells Dorothy that she's got to go fight Eveline, they're like, oh, what's that got to do with me? And they're all like, yeah, no, you can go do that. They're like prepared to let her go alone in that which was definitely very interesting. I was not prepared for that at all. They're fake as hell, actually. They were, like, really set on letting her go alone. And they had a whole new song to reiterate how much they're not going with her. Like, they're singing to her saying, like, yeah, no, you're on your own. And then she has to convince them. But it took a lot of effort, though. But it did seem kind of, like, more realistic in her personal dynamics in this version. So I don't know. I think, like, depending how much you wanted to stay in the fairy tale kind of vibe of like yeah we're all going on an adventure versus like actually exploring in a personal dynamics i think there's an argument for both eveline so this is where we find out the emerald city guard works for eveline in this version mary j blige plays eveline she fucking ate that i can't imagine following mabel king that outfit was sick as fuck it's so good don't bring me no bad news was incredible in this still which i'm super glad about the winged warriors are this time instead of being on motorcycles they're on stilts and do gymnastics and instead of torture, they have the four of them doing chores, which I appreciate because that torture scene was dark. She does still threaten to kill the three of her friends, though. And then in this version, Dorothy throws a bucket of water on her, just like in the original Wizard of Oz movie. And Brand New Day was really, really cute, too. And they switched up the rhythms to keep it interesting. And they shortened it so it wasn't nearly as long. So I really feel like they were inside of my head when they, like, reconstructed this version of the Wiz. Maybe I'm not alone in some of those thoughts. So at this point we're thinking happy ever after but they actually get banned from Emerald City and they try to like bribe him with fake gold to get the guard to leave his post. I don't even know. The lion tries to like climb up on his face and fight him. There's a lot of gaslighting and then we get like an OG like wizard reveal and it's Queen Latifah as like a whole femme woman. So it is like canon that the Wiz was doing drag which i think is great and this time there's a much better backstory for this version of the Wiz. it's just a lot more empathetic and like it's just a lot more reasonable of a person and the pep talk is also much better coming from the Wiz versus and the original version is coming from dorothy i think like queen latifah just kind of commands attention in a different way that just really lands differently and i think the writing was also a lot less awkward and then the Wiz also offers Dorothy a balloon ride back home to Omaha where she's originally from. So now there's a new scene where the Wiz is setting up a balloon ride to go home and is gonna offer to take Dorothy and everybody's crowded around excited and there's a whole new song to show off Latifah's range. Super incredible. The vocals are unreal in this version and then Dorothy doesn't go on the balloon because she realizes she doesn't belong in Omaha after all. That's kind of her realizing like what home means to her. It wasn't like this nostalgia, this place that she no longer has access to, but a place that she's very much building now. And maybe that's what 
thought was getting at when she said home is earned but I don't know so then there's a quote here home isn't where you live it's where you love which I think is sweet and then we have Uzo Aduba as Glinda and oh my god she was gorgeous she I was going to weep and in this version it's not the shoes that take her home it's just her believing in the concept of home that'll take her home and this version of if you believe like was no longer a skip for me like it's really good they got rid of all my skip songs like they made this a no skip musical for me which did not anticipate that at all i also didn't realize uzo could like sing like she's incredibly talented and then we finally get to home and <laughs> i was so excited for it and the only note i have about home was sorry i didn't want to electrocute the keyboard from crying so hard so i had to stop typing i actually remember this i was bawling at shanice's version of home it just oh my god it's just so good like oh And then the musical ends and like my god they like really did the damn thing with this so they had some major major changes but i definitely think it was for the best like i feel like sometimes like when i am feeling nostalgic and wanting connection of my own and thinking about home and missing it or what that even means to me like the wiz will be one of my comfort movies and i think the live version offers a version without the creepiness of the subway scene the grittiness, the darker themes of like ideation, which sometimes I'm not trying to process and unpack, the deep classism and like exploitation of like the sweatshop imagery and everything. Like, I think it really just offers a lot more of like a fairy tale for us that's still very much rooted in black culture. But I think that's something that like I crave is like, I think that's something a lot of us craves like black people in fantasy and in not having to be so trauma based, right? Like, I think I understand why the 1978 version wanted to bring these issues to light and like talk about it and not ignore our realities and give us that representation on screen. I think that was the point of a lot of black exploitation movies back then. But also, I mean, it ended that entire era. Like it bombed. And I think like, I can't speak for what the environment was like in 78. I wasn't there. But I do think that like as somebody who grew up with the original version and then saw this in a new light, like it's giving like, all the fantasy and magic that I would hope for us in a film that like centers black people and it gives joy instead of just trauma and heartache and like dealing with ideation and like dealing with disenfranchisement and like all of that like those are all very real things but like it really gives a more not even escapism vibe but just hopeful vibe that I think I really appreciate so yeah I in short clearly love this movie clearly love both versions. I think the original was will always have a place in my heart, even if I do like some of the instrumentation and harmonies and vocal performances and the newer one better and the pacing. And I think they both definitely have reasons that they're important to me. I just also love kind of the concept of who's bad and who's good that shows up in this work in every version, right? With the Wizard of Oz, the whole thing starts when Dorothy kills somebody. She murders somebody and people ask her, are you a good witch or a bad witch? And she's like, ah, I've never killed anybody. I'm a good person. But she literally murders somebody. It was an accident. Yes. 
but immediately she's being confronted with like her own moral standing and that really throws her in every single version yeah and then like the wicked witch of the west she's wicked in a lot of these versions and is like clearly doing horrible things but also her sister just died like i don't know i i really like how there's some nuance added to some of these things and especially when you think about the expanded oz universe of wicked right so this whole franchise kind of really dives into what's good what's bad who's villain who's hero and i think complicating some of that dynamic a little bit i don't know i just i love the wiz so much and i hope you check out at least one version both versions let me know your thoughts let's actually have a poll on this episode which version do you think is better have you seen them are you gonna go watch them and find out but let me know which version you think is better the 1978 motown productions movie version with diana ross or the wiz live by nbc live with Shanice and Elijah Kelly, Neo, Common, David Allen Greer, that version. So thank you so much for listening to my very passionate, heartfelt info dump about a movie I really care about. I hope you learned some things. I hope you'll let me know some things you enjoy about these movies on Twitter. Hit us up and I'll see y'all next time. Thanks for joining us. If you want to keep up with us, we're on all sorts of social media and you can check us out on our website, which is linked right in this episode description. Yeah, the description might be a tad long, so click see more and you should be able to see it. Also, check out our merch. We have a bunch of really cute merch that you should go enjoy because it's absolutely fucking adorable. I'm obsessed with it. Like, objectively obsessed with it. (laughs) Yes, we have all sorts of stuff, including a Yassified Lord Bar. Yeah. I designed myself. It is so good. There's a pro-evil radical femme design that's on a bunch of merch. I have a duffel bag and a tote bag for it because I'm so obsessed with it. Like, it's just so good for all your evil bimbo needs. Go check it out. Yeah, go check us out. And thanks for listening. Bye! <laughs> Hell yeah. Music by Audionautics.com <laughs>